Hi, this is Clint Shaw from the Los Angeles Times, and we're excited to be teaming up with Chase at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, you earn three times points on travel and restaurants, near, far, and the places in between. So check out Sapphire Reserve from Chase. Credit cards are issued by Chase Bank USANA. Accounts subject to credit approval. Restrictions and limitations apply. Copyright 2019, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Steven Soderbergh has remained one of the most exciting, forward-thinking, and unpredictable filmmakers working in and around Hollywood ever since his 1989 debut, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. With his new film, High Flying Bird, he again pushes limits. Shot on an iPhone, the movie is the story of a sports agent, played by Andre Holland, who's scrambling to bring an end to a pro basketball player's lockout. Part business, part personal, with a dash of heist movie energy, the movie also co-stars Zazie Beetz, Melvin Gregg, Sonia Sohn, and Kyle McLaughlin, and was written by Terrell Alvin McCraney. I sat down with Soderbergh recently in Park City, Utah, just a few hours before the world premiere of High Flying Bird, as part of the Slam Dance Film Festival, where he was also receiving the festival's Founders Award. It was an engaged, wide-ranging conversation on the specifics of Soderbergh's career and big-picture ideas on an industry in flux. Let's listen in. And we are here with Steven Soderbergh. Steven, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. We are here at the Treasure Mountain Inn, home of the Slam Dance Film Festival, where you will be receiving the Founders Award and premiering your new film, High Flying Bird. And now, Steven, what made you want to premiere this film here at Slam Dance as opposed to that other festival here in Park City? Well, I have a long history with the people at Slam Dance, and so I've tried to spread the love around a little bit. So there were a couple projects that I'm involved with that are screening across the street, as they say. And then I had High Flying Bird, and I was an executive producer on this Scottish film, Beats, that I thought would also be a really good fit for Slam Dance. So I sort of directed Brian Welsh to submit here, and they liked the film, so that all worked out. And it's the 48 hours I'm here are kind of a blur. But Now, I understand that at the very first edition of Slam Dance, this is the 25th anniversary, you had produced or executive produced the film Day Trippers, and there was a problem with the projector, and you actually ran the projector for the premiere of Day Trippers. That's not my recollection, or rather, that I had any sort of direct hand in fixing one of these broken projectors. I don't remember as well. Peter Baxter claims that I had a screwdriver out and was going to work. But we were, we had one of these funny situations where equipment was breaking down. It was unclear whether we were going to be able to show the film at all. And we managed to get one of the projectors sort of up and running. And the projector's in the room, and they built a little plywood box for it, but you can hear the projector running. And we decided okay, we're going to screen this in 20-minute reels. And at the end of each reel, the crowd would kind of go, oh. And then uh, the lights would come up and they would talk. And then when we had the reel ready to go, the lights would go down, they would applaud, and we would start the next reel. And it turned out to be kind of a cool event. Like, it was memorable, let's put it that way. Everybody who was there remembers that night. Greg Matola and I just sat in the back and literally passed a bottle of vodka back and forth to get through it. But it was, the spirit of it was very infectious.
infectious. It felt very much like you and a bunch of your friends like trying to put on a show. And so I'm happy that they've really retained that feeling. Like Slamdance now has the same vibe that it had back then. They've expanded a little bit, but not too much. It's, I feel like it's kind of the perfect size and they're bright enough to know that there is such a thing as a perfect size. So it's, I like wandering the hall here, it's, it's nice. And is that what sort of Slamdance still kind of means to you, especially maybe in distinction to the way that Sundance has just grown and grown? Well, it's a little, it's funkier. But look, I think you need both. I think it was an inevitable development that something else sort of grow out around the incredible shade that the tree of Sundance is providing. You know, like, it's it's not surprising at all to me that somebody decided, hey, there are all these people here already. That makes perfect sense to me. And I like pizza. I also like spaghetti. I like both, and I want to have both. And I feel like they provide an interesting contrast and complement to what's going on at Sundance. It's a different vibe. It's a different ethos in terms of how they pick films. It's not just Sundance light. It's got its own thing going on. So I've been happy to support any way I can. With the film that you said that you would produce that's here at Slamdance, but then also at Sundance, you've executive produced Greg Araki's new television series, Now Apocalypse, and then also Scott Burns' film, The Report. What is it that you like about collaborating with other filmmakers like as a producer? It's funny. I don't, if I say I don't like producing, that sounds really bad. There's a certain kind of DNA that enjoys the demands of that particular job. I find it really frustrating in the sense that if the phone rings, I know it's a problem. So there's that. The part about it that I like is working with the filmmakers and the team on the project that I'm producing. The creative part is really fun and it's very gratifying to, for instance, yesterday, Scott's been working on the report for a long time and it took us a while to get the script where he wanted to get it. It took us a while to find the money. It was a very complex, intensive edit because as anybody who sees the film will see there's an enormous amount of information and how to release that information and when was a sort of constant battle. And I think Scott finally found that balance, but it was a really tricky project to see it now finished yesterday in front of an audience was really gratifying. Almost more so than if it had been my movie. How so? Well, because it's hard to know where to put reactions to your own films. It's hard to know what to take on, what to ignore. Like, it's easier for me to be happy for Scott. That's pure. There's nothing ambiguous about it. There's nothing I have to worry about. You know, it's just easy for me to be happy for him. And so that's another aspect of producing that I do enjoy is being one of the facilitators for somebody's vision of what they want to do. And the Greg Araki show, which is, believe me, it's own, it's a Greg Araki show. <laughs> like, I've seen a little bit of it. I mean, yeah, it's pure Greg it's Araki. undiluted, you know, this is what he does. And it was really fun to watch that happen and to help. Greg Jacobs was the one who started the conversation going because Greg had directed some episodes for us on Red Oaks. And Greg Araki had given him this pilot script with kind of a Bible and sent it to me because I think this is really interesting. And I loved it and I took it to Chris Albrecht and he said, let's go. Like it all happened very fast, which is usually a good sign. And especially trying to take the 
for lack of a better term, auteur approach to TV. Like the things that I've produced for TV have either had one director for the whole project or in the case of Amy Simons and Lodge Kerrigan on GFE, they were working in tandem. I want to view it essentially as a giant film in terms of how we're approaching it as opposed to an episodic project in which new directors are shuffling through. I just think you get a unification of the elements that's unique if you have one decider. I like promoting that idea. And then is there anything from producing that you sort of take back to your own filmmaking? Yeah, I would think off the top of my head, if I were appropriating aspects of any producerial experience, it would be with personnel that it's a great way to meet actors you've never worked with, crew members you've never worked with, you know, composers, designers, editors. That as a way of meeting people and seeing them at work as opposed to meeting them and having a social interaction, I think that's been really beneficial for me. And it works both ways. Greg O'Brien, who cut the report, I met because he edits for Amy Simons. And I'd spent some time in a room with the two of them and liked Greg. And so when the report came along, I told Scott, I think you should talk to him. He's really good. So I like that kind of community. I like the gang part of filmmaking. And I say to young filmmakers whenever I can, sometimes they'll ask me, should I be going to film school? You didn't go to film school. And I said, well, I did and I didn't. I spent every day for four years on the LSU campus hanging out with these film students in Coates Hall. Like, that was my film school. The point is, if the only reason you're in film school now is to become part of a gang and establish these connections with people going forward, it was worth it. And it's, I think, not only good for you psychologically to establish friendships, but I think it's good from a professional standpoint to connect with other people who are trying to do what you're trying to do. It's a very isolating job. But then in your own filmmaking, as you've moved along and now you direct, you also shoot, you also edit, it seems like you've tried to pare down the number of people that you're working with on your own sets. Yes, that's true. We're always looking for inefficiencies that can be addressed. Part of the small crew thing, I think, is a holdover from how I started, which is you have a handful of people when you make a short or sometimes a feature. I mean, the Schizopolis crew was six people. There's nothing better. If you can pull that off, it's the most fun to work on a crew that's that small. But sometimes it's just not possible. I mean, we tried to... I think if you came on our set, you'd be surprised at how small the sort of core shooting crew is. But unless you're doing High Flying Bird or Unsane or Bubble, it's hard to get it down to like 12, 13 people. It's hard because people, you still got to move things, you know. So Bubble and the Girlfriend Experience film were pretty good. We We had two vans and a cube truck, and that was it. And that excited me. I was very happy about that. Tell me more about the idea of like thinking about the process itself. Like, I've, I don't know if I've ever heard someone really talk about like inefficiencies in the process before. Like, what for you is kind of the goal of thinking about filmmaking in those kind of ways? It seems like you put a lot of thought in like, how do we do this? I want to be rolling as often as possible. Like the goal here is to be rolling camera. So I'm on the lookout for things that are getting in the way of that. Sometimes it's a physical thing, but it also could be a personality issue or someone who's not quite clear on the program and is causing 
a communication breakdown or some kind of drama that's like slowing us down. Like we're very on guard for things that are pulling the focus away from having the camera rolling and shooting something. So that's really all it is. So you just keep asking yourself these questions every day of, all right, you know, 15 minutes a couple of times a day over the course of a week that you save, that adds up. That's half a day by the end of the week. So we're just, we're always analyzing the work and the process to see if we're missing something. Like, can this run any smoother than it is? Because one of the things I admire so much about your filmmaking is the fact that you're always thinking about it, how you're doing it, and you seem so open to new ideas, new technologies and new ways of working. I know even just for myself as a human, it's easy to get stuck in like the way that you do things. What is it that keeps you so like invigorated looking for like a new way of doing things and something else? Well, the good news about this job generally in my mind is that it really drains to that place because every project is completely different and has a, has a new set of demands and needs. And so already, in my mind, it throws open the idea of, well, how do we want to do it this time, like as compared to last time? If it doesn't annihilate the experience that I just had, there's some aspect of it that's in contrast. So I feel like it's fresh. And there's a core group of people that I've been working with a long time. It takes a career to build the band that you want to play with. And sometimes people go off and do solo projects and come back and play in the band again. But generally speaking, in my experience, it's been a, an efficiency to have people that I've worked with repeatedly. So there's a shorthand there. I feel comfortable delegating things to them that you probably wouldn't delegate to somebody you've never worked with before. And they feel comfortable proposing ideas because their filter has started to synchronize with my filter. So, you know, like I said, all of that stuff is in the aid of a leaner, more efficient production process because at the end of the day, the more economical you can be, the trickle-down effect of staying on budget or better yet, coming in under budget is significant. It means that the whole thing is going to be in profit sooner and that all the vig that gets charged on top, you know, comes down because the number's smaller. Like, they're all good things flow from costing less as opposed to more. So I'm allergic to projects where I see that's not really the mentality. The mentality is, well, whenever we confront a problem, we just think vertically. It's like throw money at it. Whereas I always feel what's great about being in the sort of lower budget world is it forces you to think laterally and you have to solve problems without spending money. Because it seems like, especially in the period since you came back from your brief retirement, you seem free. Like you seem in this sort of like post Hollywood phase of your career, and it, it's really exciting. Like, do you feel like you've sort of freed yourself up in some way? Well, I think I at least stumbled on a way to get reinvigorated and reset. I needed a reset, that was obvious. The retirement was really an aid of that, was to kind of, there was some static or a little bit of a dark cloud. Something was bugging me and I just needed some way of getting back to the feeling that I want to have when I go to work. And how that ended up happening was when the script for the Nick came in and I decided I wanted to do it because I didn't want to see somebody else do it. After the first week of shooting, when I was very nervous about it, the schedule was very aggressive. 
And after I realized we're going to be okay, like we found a way to shoot this show in this time allotted, I remember being on set and being happy to be there. That I realized my issues with the film business and the entertainment industry as regards my place in it, that frustration I'd sort of attached to the job. And when I was on the set of The Nick, I realized I love this job. That wasn't the problem. The problem was this other stuff. And I've just got to figure out a way to navigate around it and drive in a lane that makes me happy. So that was, for me, an important moment of reconnection to the job and realizing this is a great job. It's a job I feel like I'm built to do. And so I should do it instead of screwing around. But now, do you see yourself ever making a more sort of conventional Hollywood film again. Like last year with Ocean's 8, a lot of people were sort of wondering why you didn't want to direct Ocean's 8. That was Gary's idea, and I wanted Gary to do it. So it would depend. I'm pretty agnostic about where things live and show up. So my focus is more on projects that I'm engaged by and are compelling to me, and then figuring out, well, what's, what's the best place for this? You've got to be smart about who this is for and what's going to give it its best shot. And High Flying Bird's a perfect example. I just think had a lot of experience as a director and a producer with a kind of film that requires a platform release that goes very slowly and you start in the art house. It's a specialty film. I really felt at the end of the day, there are going to be more eyeballs on this thing on Netflix than in any other theatrical scenario. And knowing the time and the cost that those kinds of releases take, I just felt this was the right move for this movie. I hope that's the case. I, I think it is. Now, is High Flying Bird getting a theatrical release? We had this discussion the other day, and at Netflix's request, they're going to pick two screens in New York and L.A. so that they can qualify. I made it clear to them I didn't care. But I think there was some, knowing that the laundromat's coming down the pike sometime this fall, and is probably given its scale and its cast, they're probably going to want to do some sort of theatrical thing. What they were suggesting to me is, we think it would be really bad optics if people looked back and went, oh, so Stephen's movie of this kind at Netflix gets to go out in a theater, but that other movie that he made, they didn't seem to think that it was worthy of the effort. And so when they framed it that way, that it could be viewed as a diss on High Flying Bird, I said, fine, then pick a couple of screens and... But now, considering all the conversations that have been going on, in particular with Alfonso Cuaron's Roma being shown in theaters, what that experience is like, does it matter to you? Like, do you care how people see High Flying Bird? No, as long as they see it. There are two ways you can work at all of the screens that are available that aren't in a movie theater. You can either be upset about it and rail against it and pretend that it's not here and that it's growing, or you can just acknowledge that this is where we are and this is where we're heading. One of the reasons that I wanted to do Mosaic, the app branching narrative version, was that instead of complaining about people watching things on their phones or their iPads or whatever, why don't you make something that's designed to actually take advantage of the fact that it's being shown there, that you can touch it and do things. So that was one of the reasons that I wanted to make that project, because, because I thought 
a lot of people look at things on these devices. Like for me, it's not the moral dilemma that it is for some people. And now, do you think in the same way that you abandoned shooting on film and really embraced digital filmmaking sort of very early and quickly, do you feel like that's sort of a similar impulse to you now embracing these digital exhibition platforms? For somebody like me, the advances in digital cinematography and image capture were another way in which I could be more efficient in my process, in my shooting and editing. The ability to iterate that quickly and know exactly what it's going to look like for somebody like me is a get that outweighs all other issues. So this is, for me, the last 10 years, 11 years, have been incredibly exciting on a technical level. And as far as exhibition goes, again, I was never that sentimental about what film prints look like. I have a very, very clear recollection of what film prints look like, especially after they've been run a few times. And I would argue, if you want to argue capture medium with 35 millimeter or IMAX going through a camera, having a certain aesthetic that's pleasing, absolutely. But when it comes to showing something, when it comes to projecting something, it is not a normal state of affairs for a film to be weaving and scratched and dirty. It doesn't go through the gate of the camera like that. It's not weaving and it doesn't have all that physical stuff happening to it. So my attitude is, once you get into the projection stage, when you see what's possible now, like these 4K laser projectors with high dynamic range, you've never seen a print that looks like this. You haven't. The last few years, as these things were being phased out, and I would have to watch the film print of the movie that I made of Contagion or Magic Mike, it was horrifying. I always saved it to last because it was so upsetting that I didn't want it to like ruin my entire post-production experience. But you do a butterfly test, in this case of just a 2K SDR and a film print, it was ridiculous to me. So there are people for whom that emotional connection can't be severed and that's fine. With your two previous films, Logan Lucky and Unsane, you had really put a lot of effort into exploring new distribution models for those films and put in a lot of work that like, we don't see. How do you feel those experiments went? It didn't work. The studios were right about everything. It just, it didn't work. I was wrong and they were right. And sometimes you need to have an experience to really, you know, have it take. I didn't want to believe that you needed as large a number of resources as you do to put a movie on 3,000 screens because the implications are dire for the creative community. We had $20 million on Logan and Unsane to open those movies. It wasn't enough. It wasn't nearly enough. We couldn't get the awareness. So they were right about all of it. What we were trying to do wasn't a threat. It was merely the hope that another avenue would open up for some people to take advantage of a model that wasn't as expensive and that gave more creative control and financial transparency to the filmmaking team. That was the goal. It just didn't work. And so is that part of the reason why with High Flying Bird you're working with Netflix? No, I think that's more the reason why The Laundromat ended up at Netflix because it seemed like it was hard for me to come up with knowing what Scott had written and how I wanted to approach it. I was having real trouble coming up with comps of successes 
it's not a super expensive movie, but it's not a cheap movie. It's in that dead zone you're supposed to stay away from if you're a studio. Like grown-up movies in this price range don't typically make a ton of money. I remember Michael Sugar, Greg Jacobs, and I having a conversation and thinking, this may be a good place to go. We had Merrill attached at that point, and we thought, Netflix, this may be the move here. This may be the best way for this to find its audience. So High Flying Bird, like I said, very easily could have gone. I had offers from very good independent distributors to go out in a fairly typical fashion with High Flying Bird, and I just decided I didn't want to do that with that film. Also, it's a film, I would argue, that probably has a limited overseas audience. And so to be somewhere on the platform, it just drops. Everybody gets it everywhere. If they want to see it, they can. If they don't, fine. You know, that seemed to be just a simpler, cleaner way to handle a movie whose real audience is probably going to be English-speaking territories where people have some knowledge of the NBA. And that's not a lot of places. And now, as a way to get into talking about High Flying Bird, are you a sports fan? Yeah. And do you watch a lot of basketball? Not until the end of the year, like a lot of people. Yeah, I do like sports. I do watch sports. And were you excited about the idea of making a sports movie? I was, especially about making a sports movie with no sports in it, because I thought that'll be an interesting experiment. Almost 10 years ago now that I was going to do Moneyball. So my interest in that subject has been around for a long time. But I was never interested in doing a sports movie in which the specific outcome of a game was really what the audience's emotional engagement relied upon. So I needed ideas that were, if not bigger than that, at least reduced the amount of pressure that would put on the outcome of a specific game. So in the case of Moneyball, it was the transformation of player evaluation through sabermetrics. That was the thing that sort of pulled me into that because it seemed very similar to a lot of the questions that I ask when I'm trying to do things more efficiently, like Bill James and the people that followed him were sort of asking questions about how we judge players that nobody would really asked before. So that's why that was compelling to me. And in this case, I'm also very interested in how the business works and the commoditization of these athletes. And... To what extent is it appropriate for a league to control their players, especially off the court? And Andre had been talking about other projects we were working on. I knew he had things that he was developing. And we both sort of circled around and ended up in this same space of being interested in sports and being interested in the business of sports. And so we just started spitballing what a movie about that could look like. And we were interested in the African-American sports experience and in the what-if world of, oh, during the next contract negotiation, what if one of these sports leagues had a group of players who decided, you know what, we want to own this stuff. We're going to start our own league, or we want this much equity going forward. Of all the potential sports participants who could make that claim basketball seemed the most obvious not only because of the size of the teams but the fact that more than any of the other sports it is completely dominated by black players and so i pitched andre this idea of like okay what if it's a lockout what if we're six nine months into a lockout and we have a character who decides to take action that he knows is going to activate the very powerful external forces 
sitting on top of this thing, and it's unclear as you're going through the movie exactly what his motives are. But it takes place over a very contained period of time, and it's sort of like sweet smell of success. Like, that's what we talked about. He goes, okay, I like that. I want to introduce you to Terrell. Like, I think he'd be the right person to write this. So we met with Terrell, and he said he was interested, and we started that process. But it really, it grew out of those conversations, including Andre's interest in the Negro Leagues and the baseball and how this pretty substantial all-black-owned economic ecosystem died off as Major League Baseball integrated. So on the one hand, you had something that from a social progress standpoint is a good thing to have happened. The unintended consequence of that was that all these businesses went away. It was a kind of free-floating conversation that finally distilled into a project. And now for people who are interested, is High Flying Bird, in essence, the version of Moneyball you feel like you would have made? No, that was very different because of my own experiences playing baseball. And so I had a different connection to it. But I did steal one idea from the version of Moneyball that we were going to do in the months leading up to what was going to be our shoot. I was interviewing real people who knew Billy Bean and had worked with him. And I was going to use that material, these sort of like crazy stories, as sort of interstitials to um, bridge the five acts of the movie. When Greg Jacobs, who didn't produce High Flying Bird, but usually produces for me, saw a cut of High Flying Bird, he said, oh, I think you should revive this idea. I think the universe of the movie would really expand in a helpful way if you could get some real players. And so we started that process, and luckily, not only did we get some great new players, but Reggie Jackson, who's a guard for the Pistons, was drafted in 2011 during a lockout and was one of those people that was wondering how he was going to support himself while his dream was coming true. And so they were all, the three of them, Donovan Mitchell and Carl Anthony Towns, were all incredibly fascinating interview subjects. Like, they're impressive. And then tell me about casting uh, Melvin Gregg in the, in the lead role. What were you looking for in that role? And I'm asking in part because did you ever think about trying to find an actual ball player? The good news was you only saw glimpses of this one-on-one -on -one match that everybody's talking about. So I needed somebody that could sell a few flashes because it was too performance-reliant to cast a real player and then try and see if you can get them to like really be that guy. I told Carmen, no, I need an actor who can play. And so Melvin was one of the people that she'd been tracking in her own way. And I just liked his... He was a good contrast for Andre. Like, I just... I liked his vibe. He had a really great energy. Like, he's charismatic and he's funny. You know, after I cast him, I found out sort of how popular he was, that he actually has a lot of people following him. And he and I talked during the shoot because he's been shooting stuff himself. Like, he wants to make things. And I think that's really smart in the same way that Andre realized you can't just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. You have to do stuff. Like, nobody's stopping you from making things or optioning a book. So Melvin, as a young man, he's interested in all of it not just the acting part. So he's smart. In the first scene of the movie, Andre's character gives Melvin's character this mysterious package. It says he'll know when to open it. And when he opens it, it's opened at the end of the movie. It turns out it's the book, Harry Edwards' book, The Revolt of the Black Athlete. Can you tell me a little bit about what that book means to you and like how you kind of use it in the story? 
that was something that came up late that I proposed to Terrell, that there be this object that's kind of this talisman that's just kind of floating around throughout the whole movie in this kind of weird way, and that finally at the end, it's Sam that picks it up. It's not Eric Scott. She sees this package and picks it up and starts reading it because it played into this notion of the very end of the movie, the last shot, the last frame of the movie is essentially, in my mind, the birth of an activist. Like it is what's going to happen after the movie is over is Eric Scott is going to start asking questions that he never thought to ask before because of this book that Harry Edwards wrote. So that's how it worked in my mind. The book itself is such an incredible document. It's so beautifully written. And the 50th anniversary edition has a fascinating epilogue in which, unfortunately, Dr. Edwards makes the case that, like, not a lot has changed. For college athletes, not only has nothing changed, it's gotten worse. Their value and the commoditization of college athletes, it's horrifying. I feel everybody agrees, like, you've got to do something. This is not right. What that would be, I don't know, but it seems like they should start a conversation. But he was helpful. He read drafts of the script and was sort of helpful in tracking the dynamics that go on with each side when you have these kinds of conflicts. The character played by Bill Duke in the movie, he has what I think, I mean, I think it's become the tagline for the poster. He says, you have to learn how to play the game on top of the game. Do you feel that that's true? Like in working in the film industry, it's not just about making your movies. You have to learn all this other stuff too. Well, I think there are more opportunities to go your own way when you work in this field than there are in the professional sports league. I mean, that's a very prescribed path. And, you know, even compared to something like, I'm also in the liquor business, and in the liquor business, if you can't get your bottle on the back bar, you're done. Like, you can't go out on the street and, like, sell your stuff in the street. If you make a movie and you don't get into one of these festivals, you can still figure out a way for people to see it. You can post it, you can four-wall a theater, you can not take no for an answer. But these other areas like professional sports, you gotta do it their way pretty much or you're not gonna be around. And one of the things that the real players in A High Flying Bird talked about is there's no tolerance now for people like being head cases that you've not only got to be an outlier in terms of your talent and your ability, but you have to work so hard just to stay in it because there's so much competition. There's so many people running up behind you that want your spot that there's just all of them talked about. There's no screwing around. Like this idea of like, oh, he doesn't really, he's a genius. He doesn't have to practice. He, he's just a savant. Like they're like, that doesn't fly anymore. And they're, as Donovan Mitchell says, you're never off the clock now They've got these social media personas that they have to deal with. And it gets into these questions of, at what point are they themselves and not the property of the NBA? Like, where's the line here? It's pretty blurry. And that's what this movie was trying to get into as well, is what is an appropriate amount of control, you know, in this context? It's hard to get people to think, oh, should I feel sympathetic to these athletes? They make more money than I do, and et cetera, et cetera. And if you don't have an understanding of the macroeconomic structure of a sports league, yeah, I'm sure it's easy to go. It seems like they're getting paid a lot of money. But the average life of a professional sports player is short. Most of them don't make a lot of money. A lot of them have catastrophic career-ending injuries. And your lifespan is 
you hit your mid-30s, you know, that was a very fertile period for me as a filmmaker. It'd be the end of my career if I was a baseball player. So it's not an easy life. And like I said, I was really impressed by the players that I talked to, how together they are. But I also wondered, like, you could feel the pressure. They're under a lot of scrutiny, I guess I should say. They're being watched very carefully all the time. And so when Carl Anthony Towns says, it's really important to me to find the fun, like to keep it fun, I know exactly what he means. I feel the same way. Like, I want it, not that that should be in the Bill of Rights, but I would prefer to go to work and have a good experience. And now the movie has this really interesting energy in that it, on the one hand, it's a relatively small story. It was a small scale production. But at the same time, there's something very big and expansive and almost kind of epic about the feel of it. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of tension? Like, in your mind, is there a certain scale at which a movie exists? Or do you feel like there's kind of no limit to how big a movie can feel? I think it is important to find the balance of resources and ambition within the film. I think it's as frustrating to see a movie in which they clearly had too much money, like it's overproduced. It's like an inverted pyramid where the idea of this thing really doesn't justify the incredible amount of money that somebody decided they were going to spend on this. And then sometimes you see the inverse, which is somebody had a really cool, ambitious idea and they just didn't have enough money to execute it. And learning how to find that balance is an ongoing process. I've made that mistake many times myself, where in retrospect, I went, wow, we should have figured out a way to spend a lot less money on this. And maybe it wasn't possible, ultimately, to make it the way I wanted to make it for like a lot less money. But at 30 million, Warner's lost that 30 and probably another 25 to 30 in marketing, like everything. They lost everything, like nobody wanted to see it. So yeah, I look back in that and go, wow, I got the algorithm wrong on that one. This one felt right, that if it had cost five times what it cost, it wouldn't be any better and it might be worse. There's a certain energy that comes from working the way we work. Now on a technical level, I very intentionally shot widescreen 2.4.0 with these very small anamorphic lenses that Moondog makes that Sean Baker used. To give it wide lenses in that shape of a frame tend to give things a bigger feel. And so I was very conscious of wanting to, if I went into a space, I wanted you to really feel the space. Like, you know, I was looking for ways to stage things that didn't make it seem like it's just two people talking all the time. So, yeah, composition and cutting patterns, staging, all were trying to aid this feeling of not being small. I find it so interesting that the look of this movie is so different from the look of Unsane, which you also shot with the iPhone. And I think that just speaks to like the possibilities of it as a tool. Oh, absolutely. Unsane, in addition to being almost in a square format, so I was kind of going in the other direction. And then I was adding plugins to screw around with the data that we had recorded to make it look more the way I wanted it to look in my mind, which is like super contrasty and a lot of texture. Like I wanted it to feel like one of those movies made in the 70s for cheap that were shot on like regular 16 millimeter. Like I wanted a really kind of developed in gasoline aesthetic. And it is like, it's amazing what you can do with these plugins. The amount of control you have over the look and being able to basically create your own graph chart of how you want the curve, the S curve of a certain kind of grain 
and film stock to look. It's amazing. I mean, it's so detailed. I kind of want to break down a little bit the opening scene of the movie because I just found it really thrilling. It's two characters eating lunch, I think, in the Boom Boom Room in New York City. To me, it was really emblematic of, I think, what the possibilities of what you're doing now are because the cutting is really energetic. You have a lot of camera angles and setups that I don't think you could really even do with a conventional camera. It seems like you shot a lot more setups and angles than you would in like a more conventionally shot film. And to you, is that scene emblematic of the possibilities of the way that you're working now? It would have taken a lot longer if we'd have been in a more conventional mode. None of those shots were unattainable, but in a couple of cases, I couldn't have been shooting two angles at once, which I like to do when I can. And in other cases, securing the camera so that it wouldn't hurt somebody, would that takes time. I was doing an interview with somebody else about the editing process, and we were looking at that scene. And we went through and determined that there were 13 separate setups. And what I described to him was my process of, as we would rehearse the scene, and I would just hear them do it, me then taking my little shrunken down version of the script and marking off the cut points at which there would be new setups. So I would tell the actors, okay, for this, I need you to go from here to here. We do that, reset new angles. I go, okay, we're picking up here, going to here. Then I knew exactly when I was gonna jump across the line to get into the other side. I knew when I was gonna start going to the frontal angle, like I had it all drawn out. So I looked at the time code of all the takes and the whole scene to shoot from beginning to end took two and a half hours. For nine pages, that's a good day. And now, do you think as well, for you in directing and shooting and editing, that's a great example of how those things all kind of come together for you? Yeah, look, it's two conversations I don't have to have. So that's good. Somebody's described stepping back and watching a set that we're working on and the core shooting crew watching as I like block and rehearse and get ready to go into shooting. The body language of the camera assistants, the dolly grip, the gap, like looking for clues in the way I'm moving around and when I ask for a viewfinder and where I stop, like there are these like pilot fish that are trying to figure out where are we going to start? Like, are we going to start there? Are we going to start here? Like, why is he backing up over here? Is this going to, should we haul the crane out? Like, what's happening? And then eventually I'll say, okay, get the tape. Like, we'll start taping down the angles. Like, it's going to be this, 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 and this, in this sequence. It's great for me because it's a totally intuitive process mm -hmm. and, and sometimes having to describe it is not fun. So I think I've found a good balance of having it feel like the camera's a pen and that I'm kind of writing it live as we go. That's fun. This year is also the 30th anniversary of your debut feature, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. When you think back on that movie now, what comes to mind for you? Oh, I think just the surprise of all of it, for all of us. I don't think none of us had any sense of what was going to happen and certainly that it was going to turn out so positively. It was just one of those movies that everybody who touched it made money. It was just one of those things that happens. It's Haley's Comet. Like, it doesn't happen all the time, but it just was one of those movies. But when you think about the filmmaker you are now and the way that you're working now and maybe the way you worked then, do you see a big distance between the two? 
only in my process and my experience, knowledge that you can't get any other way than spending hours on the floor trying to figure stuff out. My filtering process is much faster than it would have been back then. If you gave me a novel and said, how do you think this should be done? I feel much more confident in my ability to find a not obvious but interesting way in. I'd have some idea where I go, well, here's one thing you can do is cast the same actor in these two parts. And there are technical things that I have probably a little more appreciation for than I did in 1989. But if you flashed me forward 30 years and said, you're going to be at both of these festivals, you're going to be here as producer of The Report, executive producer of Beats, executive producer of Now Apocalypse, Greg Araki's show, and you will have directed your own low-budget independent feature that you'll premiere here, I would go, that sounds great. And just my last question for you is, as I was reading Getting Away With It, there was a line that just really jumped out at me. At one point you say, the fun part is making them, the rest is crap. Do you still feel that way? Oh, yeah. 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 But you have to figure out, the other thing that I think you have to address, and I talk to this to film students, aspiring filmmakers as well, is, which is somewhat related to this, and that is your character. Your character matters, and you need to remember that most of our lives are something happens to me, I tell you about it. Something happens to you, you tell me about it. That's most of our lives. So what are those stories? People are going to tell stories about you, especially if you're the director. Like, that's a very popular topic on a film set. What do you want those stories to be? What kind of stories do you want circulating about you? Because it could be the difference between you getting work and not getting work or somebody saying yes to being a part of your project and somebody saying no. So I talk about press. I talk about little technical things like try to say us, we, our, instead of me, I, mine. Like try to remember that this is a very collaborative art form and don't fall into this trap of being the center of the artistic universe. So finding a balance this process, this uh, talking process, after the fact, I wonder if for the person doing the talking, what the benefits are. I mean, you want people to go see these things, of course, but it's hard for me to tell if it's helping me or if it's forcing me back into a way of thinking that's not very helpful in a creative context. It's got me in a sort of purely intellectual space as opposed to an instinctual space. I don't know. What if I said Netflix paid good money for this movie? What do you think their reaction would be? And I imagine what mine would be if I said to them, oh, and I'm not doing any press for this. You're just going to have to drop it and see what happens. If I were on the other end of that conversation, I'd go, what are you talking about? Like, you can't, there's too much competition for eyeballs now. Like, the days of things, you know, taking time to be discovered, I think. It's rare now. It's very rare. Steven Soderbergh, I thank you for giving us so much of your time. Again, thank you so much. So for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Wilson. Thanks for listening.